Welcome on into the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 25 of Greens with Envy. I'm Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of Golf Course Industry Magazine, joined, as always, by my friend and colleague, Guy Cipriano. He is the Editor-in-Chief of Golf Course Industry Magazine. Guy, how you doing? I feel like I'm 25 right now, or maybe put it this way, I wish I was 25 right now. And we will get into why Guy wishes he was 25 right now, because Greens with Envy is the podcast where Guy and I talk about where we've been, what we've done, who we've seen, who we've talked with. And while I have been back here trying to finalize moving into a new house, we've got that going on in the next few weeks. Guy has been on the road on a very nice blended work and pleasure trip down to uh, the southern parts of the United States. And there is quite a format for this episode. Before anything else, do want to point out uh, we are fast approaching the 10th annual GCI Tweetup. Tag it online, hashtag GCI Tweetup21. We are eight days away. If you're listening to this on the day this podcast drops, Tuesday, March 23rd, the Tweetup itself is 3 p.m. Eastern on March 31st. On Zoom, uh, should be a great event. A lot of great special guests being rolled out on our Twitter uh, at GCI Magazine. Also unveiling day by day, starting yesterday, a series of nine Super Social Media Award winners. The first, somewhat ironic, Matt Schaefer, who is in his late 60s, a turf legend, and the Social Media Rookie of the Year. Tune in every day on our social channels for a new video. A uh, lot of good tips and tricks about social media, some about conservation, some about just lessons learned over the last year. So enough promotion. Guy, let's talk about South Carolina, or as some natives call it, South Cackalack. The Palmetto State. The Palmetto State, and they do not let you forget it. It's on the license plates. It's on the stickers on the backs of the cars, shirts, hats, everything. What is going on in South Carolina? Uh, you write that visitors and new residents alike are flocking from the north. When I lived in North Carolina, the population was already booming. There are still more people moving to the Carolinas, huh? So for, for a recap here, I was all over the South Carolina coast the last eight days. What sparked this was a... Friends trip to Myrtle Beach. We've talked about our golf league, the Hooligans, on this podcast before, and we did a Myrtle Beach trip that started on a Thursday and went until a Saturday. I decided it would be cool to get down to South Carolina early and visit some golf courses and some readers and work on some stories. So I flew into Charleston, and I left Cleveland on a Sunday morning, Matt. Got to the airport at 5 a.m. when daylight savings time. Mm. Jumped ahead. And I knew that this was going to be a bit of a different situation than when I traveled to California last March when I got in the airport and it was packed. The most people that I've seen flying since we went to the golf industry show in February of 2020, it felt like the normal amount of traffic. And I was kind of thinking, well, why could that be? Why are so many people here so early on a, a, a Sunday morning? I didn't even really think about this, but I guess it's spring break time. I, I didn't realize that. Sure. I'm, I'm not in college anymore, although I tried to act like I was in college again in Myrtle Beach, and that didn't turn out uh, too well. So I, I, I knew a lot of people were headed south, a logical place to go. Weather's pretty good this time of year. Uh, people have been itching to get away. Some people are getting the vaccine now. People feel a little bit more comfortable tra uh, traveling. They've heard from their friends that things are pretty smooth and order orderly and safe on airplanes and at airports. So I get to Charleston and my first visit is at Dunes West where our friend Robert Mackey is the superintendent and Dunes West is about 15 minutes north of downtown Charleston in a town called Mount Pleasant. And get this, the population of Mount Pleasant, South Carolina in 2000 was 47,000. Okay, so 47,000 20 years ago. The population at the end of 2020 was over 95,000. So it's more than doubled in a little over two decades. It's only getting faster. These really nice coastal areas of South Carolina, when you talk about Charleston 
and Hilton Head are just exploding right now. Lots are being turned over in record time. People are just buying houses on lots, taking the houses down and building new houses in some of these golf course communities. Must be must be pretty nice that, that to have that type of disposable income. But there is a huge influx of northerners moving to the southeast and Charleston and Hilton Head are close to the epicenter of that and it was really reflective in what our readers saw last year out on the golf courses for example Dunes West semi-private course in Mount Pleasant South Carolina 30 years old turns 30 years old this year it's an Art Hills design did a record 54,000 rounds of golf last year Mm. it's a lot of golf yeah, and I visited Robert on a Sunday, and he was so happy because guess what he got to do the next day? Take a day off. No. This is probably even better in a superintendent's world. Okay. They were able to move tea times back a little bit so that they could top dress <laughs> that morning. <laughs> there you go. Just sun- I, I got there around 11 a.m. on a Sunday, and you just pull in, and you see one or two groups on every single hole. It's not slowing down. They're probably on pace to do more than 54,000 rounds already this cool. year. Uh, it's it's a combination of things. Obviously, people are reinvigorated with golf, but just the, when the population's exploding like that in a part of South Carolina, you have a lot of people that want to play golf and be outside, and the, their homes are on golf courses. So I, I, I knew something unique was going on or something that a bit different was going on when I was in just Mount Pleasant there riding around with Robert and hearing – you know, how much just that part north, that, that area north of Charleston has changed just in the 19 years that he's been down there. Robert's a Kentucky native who's settled really nicely at Dunes West. Uh, he's been the superintendent there for, this is his 16th season, so that's that's a long time. It's a good run. Yeah, he got the job in his uh, 20s, and he's done a great job with it, but uh, has really good ownership support, and uh, they're just seeing an explosion in play, and my observations driving around with him, uh, past Palum greens that are only two years old, they did a conversion in 2019, is that this is a facility, a really good semi-private facility, obviously a lot of public pr- play that has taken some of the successes that it had in 2020 and already reinvested in the golf course. I mean, they, they did a fairway bunker renovation about a month ago, and uh, it, it, a place like that, high-quality public golf, Decent price point. Uh, those are the type of places that are just getting inundated with play. But the the, the turf overseed of fairways, uh, like I said, past Palm Greens, the golf course is really handling that traffic really well. Uh, the one thing that I really noticed is just the amount of divots on par three tee boxes everywhere I went. The greens are fine. Uh, people are repairing their ball marks. If they're not repairing their ball marks, the superintendents and their teams are getting to them and they're healing up. Well, but when I when I go to these, and I even noticed it before I went to South Carolina, Matt, just playing some golf courses here in Northeast Ohio when we had a nice weather stretch, is that the, the par three tees took a beating last year. I cannot tell you already, and it's late March, how many social media sightings, mostly on Twitter, I have seen already of superintendents and assistants uh, and even a few grounds crew folks who have tweeted out images of just awful awful indentations on the greens with the pleading to please, please fix your divots. And uh, you're preaching to the choir with Guy and I, but I feel like this is going to be a, a huge year for uh, ball marks, and, and hopefully uh, hopefully the record number of golfers are very kind. Yeah, and there's an educational process uh, there, and I think most golfers – know that they need to fill in their divots in the fairways and on par threes and repair their ball marks on the greens. You're never going to get a hundred percent buy-in with one of those as no. much as superintendents would like it. But if you get uh, the people that really bought into it to fix two or three ball marks, every time they're on a green, the course can police itself. And, and I know superintendents get worked up over those things, but trust me after just spending three days with, the average golfer, or I guess if you go by quality of play, the below average golfer, just our 16-person group that was in Myrtle Beach, uh, golfers don't notice those things as much as sometimes superintendents think. And we'll get into that at the end of the podcast, kind of what I, I learned by going on a golf trip with some friends. We were supposed mm-hmm. to go last year, went two years ago. Obviously, it didn't happen last year. But we'll get into some of those observations later about what the the average golfer is looking for, especially on a, 
a trip with friends. But yeah, these courses are definitely taking a beating. But Dunes West, you know, back to the first visit on this mm-hmm. trip. Uh, you know, Robert just does a fabulous job there. Like I said, he and his team converted from Tiffdorf to Pass Palum Greens uh, two years ago. They did that in house, and they did a awesome, awesome job. They did that during the summer, which is in a place like Charleston, South Carolina, it's pretty sultry. That's that's the slow season right now. We're just getting into that 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 peak spring season on the South Carolina coast. Uh, you know some. Things you don't think of is just how bad the, the water quality is on some of these coastal courses uh, and how that affects turf conditions. Uh, you hear stories about it, or maybe sometimes you take just water quality for granted, but their, their courses down in the low country of South Carolina where that, yes, the superintendent, what's the number one agronomic issue? And it's, it's, it's the water quality and how you find, find ways to, to handle that. But uh, just just really cool place, the ownership at Dunes West, owns two other courses in, in Charleston. One's a private course, another one's a semi-private course. And all three of those courses are just busy, and they have a great owner who's reinvesting in them. Uh, yeah, so that that was a Art Hills design, w- wide playing areas. I could see why it's so popular. Uh, believe it or not, the green fee was under 100 bucks. You know, you, you look at it and you think about all the excitement in golf right now and all the people coming from north to south to play, especially this time of year, you're thinking – they could probably get much more than a hundred bucks around, but but they're making it affordable, and I, I I guess it's a tough thing a lot of owners and operators face right now is with with the soaring demand on on tee times, how much revenue do you want to milk out of each tee time, and what's fair and what's what's not fair? And I've noticed that courses are raising their rates. I, I this is one that probably could have raised them drastically, but they kind of stayed towards the same price point, and that's a that's a a, a, a tricky decision because if you're doing Fifty-four thousand rounds. Now, obviously, the late March, April, May rate is going to be different than the the, the summer rate. But you know, you you go up ten percent, even fifteen percent on your green fee per round. Now, that's some serious revenue that can come into these golf courses. But do you do that now? And then when the demand goes back down, I'm not sure if it's going to go back down. I don't see that happening in the foreseeable future. But it's eventually going to happen. The demand we're seeing now isn't going to. Uh, stay like this for eternity, then do do you lose some customer goodwill? So like any business, Matt, tricky, tricky pricing decisions on the daily fee player, the resort player, and and also on membership costs right now. Yeah, the demand is the great question for this year, and I think we'll probably get some better answers to that. I would say still in July. Uh, That's what a lot of people predicted. Uh, A lot of industry thought leaders predicted late last year and early this year. And uh, even with vaccine rollout a little bit ahead of pace and, and a lot of other activities opening back up, whether it's other sporting events or restaurants or soon theaters, uh, other sources of expendable income, July is still, I think, going to be that that start where we really track with increased interest the demand. Your point on on revenue too, even if it's not even ten or fifteen percent, even if it's something closer to what a normal inflation or cost of living increase would be, you tack on five dollars to fifty four thousand rounds. That's a quarter million dollars. You tack on ten million, you know, you're over half a million dollars. It it adds up very quickly when you're doing that level of uh, of play. And that leads into another thing. So you almost have to raise your green fees or membership dues or your other rates higher than inflation right now because I've never seen a labor situation like this in the United States, Matt. There are so many people traveling to these places down south. And I spoke with a restaurant owner near the hotel I was staying in Hilton Head, and she said that they're only operating at 60% 60% capacity. And I said, well, that's interesting. I thought that the in South Carolina, you could open a business at 100%. And she said, no, we're only operating at 60% because that's all the labor we have to handle the people that's coming, people that are coming in. I mean, I saw drive through lanes at Dunkin Donuts that were, I kid you not, 20, 30 cars deep. Yeah. So I you combine all these people coming to these coastal areas of South Carolina and a workforce that's slow to get back to work for whatever reason we can we're not going to get into that in that in this podcast just to get people to satisfy the the customer demand whether you're in golf or any other industry 
you're going to have to step up your pay rate in a big way. So we hear about courses doing uh, terrific round numbers, which is leading to more revenue. Well, a lot of that is just going to have to be pumped back into to labor at this point. And you're going to have to get really competitive with your wages to, to hire people right now and satisfy that that golfer demand. And that's just not the the maintenance side. The maintenance side is probably doing better than even some of the clubhouse and pro shop sides. These restaurants and pro shops, sometimes uh, getting people to work you know, just at the cart drop-off or even finding beverage cart workers, that's very very challenging. So uh, this this labor situation is just unlike anything I, I, I've seen in my life. It's like you have people that want to go out and do things, uh, tourism and recreation that wants to come back to, to life, but you're not going to have the people working at these places that are dependent on discretionary income to handle all that demand right now. And if what I saw in the Southeast, which is a little bit faster to to get back to a robust situation in other parts of the country – once these other parts of the country get back to it, they're going to see what people in the Southeast are experiencing. I mean, just, I would say if you're traveling recreationally, bank on things like going to a restaurant, going through a drive through checking in at the, the hotel to take significantly longer than what you, you, you were expecting it to be or what your past experiences were with these things 14 months ago. Huh. Travel tips by guy. And your round of golf is going to take longer too because there's so many people on the golf course right now. Every everything's going to take everything you want to do for quote unquote fun that you haven't done for the last year is going to take longer and be more of a hassle than it was before. So you're saying either schedule less or stay on the road longer, and you chose not to schedule less, so you stayed on the road longer. I think you were gone what eight days. Uh, before we get into the next bullet point, because I don't want to cut Dunes West short. I know we've been talking about it for a little bit. Anything else you want to mention uh, about Dunes West before we head to somewhere else in I, South Carolina? I was just so impressed with our friend Robert Mackey. I mean, 16 years as the, the, the head superintendent, han- handling all that play. Uh, a Kentucky native who picked up his life and moved to Charleston to try to make a go of it in the golf industry. Didn't really know anyone when he moved down there 19 years ago, and now he's settled so nicely as the superintendent. He gets treated well by his owners, and he's providing a product that is enjoyed by the masses, and that's what it's all about in this industry. You know, sometimes people think that they have to go job hunting, or, or you know, once they're at one place, they have to try to get to the, the another place. But but Robert's an example of somebody. If if you work hard, find a course that's a right fit you can really do something seriously fulfilling for a long time in this industry. And he, I know Robert's listening because he mentioned to me that he's a big listener of the podcast and a big fan of yours, Matt. Well, Robert, you're kind and, and, but more than anything else, thank you for listening. I saw that on Twitter last week. Um, So if you drive around good chunks of the country and certainly here in the Midwest, you see the oval bumper sticker, uh, black lettering and a black oval, uh, black outline on a white oval, HHI, Hilton Head Island. Now, you do not have one of those on your car. I don't have one of those on my car, but a lot of people do. You did spend a lot of time on Hilton Head Island last week, and you think it should have a different nickname. Well, I had never been to Hilton Head Island until last week. Uh, crazy to think that you can work in the, the golf industry for seven years and not make your way to Hilton Head. This would explain why you don't have a Hilton Head Island sticker on the back of your car. Okay. I do not deserve credit for this one. So one of the things I do is when I'm at airports or visits, visitor centers is I always pick up a bunch of tourism-related material. And there's a good chance when you look on these walls or in these bookshelves, you'll see golf guides. So I have in my hands the spring 2021 Hilton Head Island golf guide and i'm reading the publisher's note by the low country golf course owners association and in this note they call hilton head island the golf island so which makes sense because i was looking at the uh market specific data from the national golf foundation and do you know what golf market in the united states has the lowest ratio so Lowest number of residents per 18 holes? Well, since you bring it up, I would guess Hilton Head Island. So the Hilton Head Island, Bluffton, and Beerfort market. Now, Bluffton okay. and Beerfort are 
inland. Hillhead yep. really is yep. an island. So they have 1,089 golf holes for 212,000 residents. That's 3,419 residents per 18 holes. That's the lowest ratio in the country. Hmm. That's interesting. So there's a lot of golf there in a very compact area. 1,089 holes on Hilton Head Island and then inland as well uh, in a few of the surrounding areas. You spent some time on at least four of those courses, right? It was Wexford, it was Long Cove Club, it was Sea Pines, and it was Harbortown, right? Are those the four that you visited? Uh, so actually, it was it was five. So Wexford's <laughs> 18 holes, Long Cove Club is 18 holes, and then within Sea Pines Resort, you have 54 holes. You have Harbortown, of course, which everybody knows about, but then you also have Heron Point and Atlantic Dunes. So in the two days that I was... On Hilton Head Island, I, I made it to three golf courses, or three three golf properties with five golf courses. Do you want to start with Wexford? Yeah, that was the first one I visited. Okay. Uh, Wexford is a 18-hole private golf course within a gated community. Uh, Chris Neff is the director of Greens and Grounds. He has a golf course superintendent, Billy Deerman, and a ground superintendent in Adam Givens. And, oh my goodness. I've not seen a place like Wexford and I'm not even talking about the golf course, which is a nice Arnold Palmer designed golf course with Zoja grass fairways. But this area has its own lock system. I've never seen that in a gated community. It's only, there are only three of its kind on the Atlantic coast. And one of them's at Wexford, which is, uh, you know, that you have all these homes and these homes are not only on the golf course. Some of them are in a Harbor that goes through a lock to the, to the river, to the intracoastal waterway, to the Atlantic Ocean. So if, you, if you're one of these members and you have a yacht and you also have a place in Florida, you could boat, boat from one home to, to the other because of this lock system. You said lock, and I instinctively thought locks on a door. You're talking about the waterway locks, which uh, around these parts were used on the Ohio and Erie Canal 200 years ago, and, and basically... I'm sure most listeners are familiar with locks, but if you're not, a lock essentially allows a uh, boat or other aquatic vessel to settle in one area, a gate closes behind you, the next gate opens, and you're able to basically change levels uh, from one to the next. Well, this lock system is a little bit bigger than the locks you see on the I, Ohio Erie Canal, which was yeah. uh, designed in the 1800s to yeah. move wooden boats basically from... From Lake Erie to inland Ohio. Right. There weren't many yachts traveling the Ohio and Erie Canal 200 years ago. In fact, You're, I don't think there were any. While we're on this topic, have you ever been to the Erie Canal Way in upstate New York? Yeah. that That's one of the great lock systems you'll ever see. That's one of the great multi-purpose uh, running, walking, biking trails, too. And it goes from... It goes Haven't you heard the song? 300 miles, right? Low bridge, everyone down. You go from Albany to Buffalo. Yeah. It's like, it. yeah, it's 300 miles, give or take. Yeah. Okay. So back to Hilton Head. We, yes. Matt and I, Matt and I have been to a lot of places. We can get on a lot of rants. So yeah. So Chris Neff and his team at Wexford are responsible for this 525 acre property. 37 of those acres are the inland harbor with Broad Creek that connects to the intercoastal waterway. Like I said, that goes to Atlantic the Ocean. Um, 238 of the 549 home sites overlook the, the the golf course. So the the other ones, you know, overlook the harbor or the waterways. Uh, pretty unique. Uh, Really, only two of the holes have that coastal marshy feel. That's number uh, 17, which is a, a par three, and number 18, which uh, you hit kind of to an island fairway into the green. Um, so much for Chris Neff and his team to, to maintain. It's interesting when you talk to him. It's just not about the golf course. It's about all the other amenities and landscapes that they have to maintain there. And that's one thing that we have a lot of readers here that want to eventually be a superintendent or director at one of those high-level Southeast clubs. And one of the things you have to understand that it, when you get to that level, it is not just about about the golf course. So Chris is a really good manager of those areas. He, he does a tremendous job of putting people in the right places. He keeps a low-key atmosphere there. It was a lot of fun to be around him and his team. Uh, they're, they're replacing the irrigation system right now, hmm. and they're doing it one hole at a time. And I believe it took less than 100 days. Wow. So basically five to six days per hole. 
roughly. Yeah, moving. I mean, I yeah. mean, great work by everybody involved. And just think of all the planning and organization that needs to, to handle a project like that and make mm-hmm. sure it goes smoothly. Uh, a golf course that does like, t- you know, somewhere between ten and 15,000 rounds a year that did over 20,000 rounds last year. So mm-hmm. the members are on site more. And, you know, many of these members own homes in multiple places. But, but based on what Chris and his team are say- seeing, a lot of them have really – hunkered down on Hilton Head Island over the last year and people that maybe they would not have seen over the summer were around more in the summer or maybe some of the people that they you know only saw in summer and didn't see in winter were around in winter and summer so that's what's happening in these southeast gulf communities and some of these states is that that they you know really went from shoulder season clubs or seasonal clubs and really they're over the past year have become year-round clubs because of where people want want to spend their time during this pandemic and that brings on a a whole new set of challenges. They have zoysia grass fairways, like I mentioned, which uh, uh, don't handle cart traffic as well, especially when it's a bit bit colder out. So they really had to manage that. Uh, big, um, steep, deep bunkers, which uh, have beautiful white sand, and uh, they, they just put some capillary concrete in them to improve the drainage. You know, at, a pl- at, a, at, at that level, you're always doing a project. And like I said, Chris Neff is more of a administrator and project manager than somebody who's obviously he knows what's going on on the golf course day to day, but he's got so much over to oversee his, his titles, director of green and grounds. And it really it's split 50, 50 between those two. And then of course, obviously all the club politics and communication and you're not doing a whole lot of uh, daily superintendent work at that point for better or worse. No, and you know it. I mean, the people that have been in the industry long enough, when they get to that level, then it they know what they're getting into. Mm-hmm. And if you if if all you want to do is is daily golf course work, then you know maybe some of these big sprawling, exclusive private clubs and gated communities might might not be your style. That's the good thing. There's a golf course for every type mm-hmm. of player, and there's also a golf course for everybody that wants to to work in the industry. Yep. So if you love being out on the turf and in there with your team and mowing every day, you know, if the position says director, you're probably going to be doing more project man- management and administrative tasks than you will be hands-on turf tasks. Yep. All in the job title, which itself changes from spot to spot and all the responsibilities. So after Wexford, you went to Long Cove Club. And- which was a long, long drive. The two clubs border each other. Oh, how far was it? Oh, it was, I mean, I could have uh, walked into the woods to get from one club to the next, but I'm not sure what's in those woods. There are probably some critters that I wouldn't want to be messing around with. Well, we haven't written a good critter story in a while. Oh, that you will do one this year. You still have not, I know. unless you count a 40th anniversary Caddyshack story, a critter story, you mm-hmm. have not done a critter story yet. I don't, and I haven't. Uh, so Wexford and Long Cove bordered, uh, share a border, uh, the woods there. You spent some time with our friend Ashley Davis there and boy, did that get a lot of attention on, on Twitter. You just sent out one little photo and everybody came to say, oh my gosh, how's he doing? What's going on? Uh, I think everybody was happy to see Ashley. Yeah. Ashley is very well respected in the Southeast. He has done an incredible job not only at long cove but sending people uh in the turf industry on to higher positions because of the experience that they gained at long cove and before we get into that and you know the impressive people management skills that ashley has so wexford and long cove are right next to each other and they could not have been any more different you know I just mentioned that Wexford has all these other amenities and the lock system and the harbor. Well, Long Cove was built by golf people, for golf people, a lot of homes there. And those homeowners have been around a lot, too, over the the course of the year. And Long Cove opened in 1981, and it's really one of the most fascinating golf construction stories for those of us that that study these things. Uh, Pete Dye wrote about it in Bury Me in the Pot Bunker. And, of course, Pete Dye is the name architect on there and Alice was heavily involved but also listen to the team that worked at Long Cove in in, in the early 1980s so on, working alongside Pete and Alice were Tom Doak Bobby Weed PB Dye Scott Poole and Ron Ferris and this is when PB Dye was just doing some incredible wild 
shaping work and there are so many cool mounds and undulations and humps and just the the way they used basically a dead piece of flat land at Long Cove and turned it into this just amazing golf course that players of any skill level and especially high caliber players just love to play day after day. And it's we'll get to Harbor Town in a second. So Harbor Town opened in 1969. That was Pete Dye's first design on Hilton Head Island. Long Cove comes along 12 years after that, and they couldn't be any more different. Which really, to me, just seeing the differences between Har- Harbor Town and Long Cove, you know, in that same area, so close to each other, and see how different they were, just really shows you how Pete Dye just evolved at various points in his career. But uh, there, there's some crazy construction stories, like I said, with Long Cove. I heard some of them from Ashley. We, we probably shouldn't be mentioning these on the air, so we'll, we'll not do that. They just did uh, – Bobby Weed just led a uh, restoration of it a, a few years ago, and uh, such a cool place. And that's another one where – so Long Cove Club, high-level high private club, did close to 35,000 rounds last year. Huh. Everybody. And I mean, that was without guest play. It shouldn't surprise me so th- when I when I hear these big numbers so anymore. That tells you how many people just hunkered down in Hilton Head in their home there over the past year, and also tells you how much those members love to play the game of golf. And you know, Ashley and his team just do an incredible job. Uh, this looked like the type of golf course you would just want to play over and over again. Uh, it looks like you could be on it every single day and notice four or five things that you didn't notice before. It just it, it really had that vibe around there. And you know, a little bit bit about Ashley. He's been the superintendent there. Uh, so he's from rural South Carolina, and he became the superintendent in 2003. So he's had an 18-year run there at a high-level private club on Hilton Head Island. Uh, I asked him how many of his assistants have gone on to become superintendents, and he, he didn't even know. But, you know, it, it's got to be somewhere around 20, if not more 20, just from anecdotes and hearing him talk and try to rattle names off, which that's that's pretty impressive when you consider the contraction in the golf market and mm-hmm. fewer head superintendent jobs are available now than were available in the late 90s and early early 2000s. And you know, Ashley is a very intense person, but he also has that likes-to-have-fun side. So I asked him, I said, what are the three things you need if you're a young person in the industry to, to come to Long Cove, to flourish this environment and accelerate your career or take your career to, to the next step. And this is great people management right here. He said the three things are work hard, be able to interact with others, and like to have fun. Work hard, interact, have fun. Those are good rules. And he, he brought up a great point. I mean, most of us at our jobs are with the people we work with more than our, our significant others. Uh, Matt would probably say, I see too much of you guy and too less of Carolyn. But if you can't come to it every day and have fun, then you know what's the point in this industry? Golf is not mm-hmm. it's not a tough job. I mean, it's a very tough job. You're waking up well before the rest of the world. Sometimes you're staying there until the rest of the world goes home. And those people are going home after starting a job that they started in the day much later than you did. So it needs to have that 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 type of vibe and you know, I, I was just thinking if I'm a young person in the industry in the Southeast, knowing w- who's moved on from Long Cove Club, how cool that golf course is, uh, what it would be like to be, be in that environment, how much you learn. I mean, I'll just give you an example. When I was in uh, Ashley's office before we went out to the golf course, you know, three young assistants came in and had questions about different things going out on, on the course, whether it was a, a spray application or what they were doing the next day. And just I, I just saw it firsthand just how he educated his uh, – his staff right there and just those few interactions when we were in the uh, office, it just such an impressive system. Uh, just like Wexford has a few holes on the marsh. So you could go to the marsh on the marsh holes, which are 13 and 14 at Long Cove and 17 and 18 at Wexford and go out and you know, see the neighboring golf course. Uh, that's one other thing about Hilton Head Island. You think there's all these coastal holes and they're really not, not that many. You, you feel no. like you're at an inland course most of the time on these properties. So just uh, really cool to see Ashley. You could tell that he's an intense person. Uh, we had a very high-paced, high-energy tour of the golf course. Uh, I learned a lot by going around with him. And uh, just think, uh, Pete Dye probably never envisioned you know, Long Cove pumping out over 30,000 rounds when they built that 40 no. years ago. And just, uh, just a great Pete Dye design. Um, 
the fifth hole, which is a short par four, is one of the coolest short par fours I've ever seen. So you could cut it left over water to a green that has um, all this love grass behind it, but that's a really stupid way to play. They said some of the players that have been down there that were down there playing the uh, RBC Heritage last summer on the PGA Tour came over yeah. and played Long Cove and. They were able to do it, or at least come close to do it, but but just it has this Alps feel to it. It plays around water, uh, just just the shaping and the mounting is just almost unlike any shaping and mounting I've ever seen on a golf course. So really cool to see it. You know, I saw the color contrast with the the dormant Bermuda grass and the the overseeded fairways. I think that that's a really cool time of year to see a golf course because you really see the the features that were either natural or the features that were created by the people who built the golf course because of the color contrast with the dormant and uh, overseas turf. You mentioned Harbortown a few minutes ago, and we'll get to Harbortown, but in your notes, in the format that you passed along before Harbortown, you wrote, Sea Pines Resort, much more than Harbortown. What else do you want to talk about uh, in regard to Sea Pines besides Harbortown? Yeah, there are two other golf courses at, at at Sea Pines, and they've both been transformed. You know, recently, uh, one's called Heron Point, which is a Pete Dye design, and the other one's called Atlantic Dunes, which is now a, um, a Davis Love the Third design. He's the name architect on it. Scott Sherman was really the ASGCA member that was on site a lot, along with Davis's brother Mark Love, and both courses uh, very very different. Heron Point kind of had a feel like if you blend it harbor town and long cove it would look something like heron point i didn't realize this until soup so brooks Intel's the superintendent of both golf courses at sea pines harbor town has a crew that's led up by jonathan wright who's been there for over 20 years and then brooks Intel leads a 45 person crew that oversees atlantic dunes and heron point and then within brooks team he has a crew just for Heron Point and a crew just for Atlantic Dunes. Now, of course, Brooke and Jonathan are communicating a lot, and they do everything they can to involve as many people that work golf course maintenance at Sea Pines in the RBC Heritage when that comes to town each April because that, that's a huge deal down there. So, uh, But they share equipment. They share philosophies, but they do run different crews. And also, you know, the big difference is, is that Harbortown is a wall-to-wall overseed at golf course where you're just overseeding tees, greens, and fairways at Heron Point and Atlantic Dunes. But um, like I said, just uh, Heron Point inland, Pete Dye design, you know, mid, I think it was around 2004, 2005 is when Dye worked there. And then Atlantic Dunes, you know, 2015, they start this big renovation led by the, the Love Team and Scott Sherman. And Atlantic Dunes has an amazing 15th hole. It's a par three that plays out to the Atlantic Ocean, sand dunes behind it. You walk to the back of the green. You can see the the, the beautiful ocean there. Uh, some, you know, just waste areas on the left, and the you know Hilton Head Island only has two holes on the Atlantic Ocean. The tenth at Palmetto Dunes and the fifteenth at Atlantic Dunes. That's so wild. you'd think there'd be all these coastal holes there, but they're some of the most uh, rigid ordinances and zoning requirements in the country. That's another thing. It's going to be interesting to see how Hilton Head Island, which is very conservation focused, like Matt, I went on a run on the bike path outside my hotel and they have um, different like signage as you go throughout this trail, just telling you about different uh, wildlife and plant species found on the island, different um, facts about the development of it and the conservation practices. So it's interesting. This is a place everybody wants to live in but it's a place where they're not going to develop it Mm -hmm. if it stays within its ethos which you know hilton head island for the last 50 60 years has not overdeveloped in fact it's probably one of the least developed places that could be overdeveloped i've I've ever been to like you drive or walk around the island and you can't even see where the businesses are because they're covered by trees and just uh, have you been there it's been a while yeah it's just very interesting because you know that you're in a place that Everybody wants to visit or move to, but not everybody will ever get to move there that wants to move there mm-hmm. because there, there are only so many homes for sale and only so much of the island developed. So, yeah, it was cool to see the first two cor- uh, those two courses, Heron Point and Atlantic Dunes, before going over to Harbortown. And in regard to Harbortown, they're less than a month out from RBC Heritage Week now. Yeah, so I 
got to go around it with our good friend Tim Morgan, which ah uh, yes, what an experience that was. <laughs> and the day that we went around it was twenty seven days until RBC Heritage Week, and this is pretty phenomenal. What Superintendent John Wright and his team are trying to do here. So that last year at this time they were prepping for a golf tournament on an overseed course that never happened because of mm-hmm. COVID-19. Right. However, the tournament did happen because the PGA Tour rescheduled it for June, so they ended up playing on uh, the Bermuda Grass golf course, and now here they are, you know, 12 months later, getting to play on an overseeded golf course, or getting ready right. to play on an overseeded golf course. And it was cool going around when we did because you saw things that, heck, uh, golf is, at least tournament spectator golf, is getting back to normal as we were playing. They were putting the uh, – the set the bleachers around the the 17th hole and the 18th tee which are the two holes that are on Calabogie Sound there and when you know everybody that's watched the RBC Heritage remembers those those holes and they are just as spectacular when you're on the ground is what they look like on TV but the 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 golf course yeah so you, you felt like oh boy you know PGA Tour you, you're starting to hear fans clap on t- TV you're seeing some bleachers go up you're like hey hey this is this is getting real we're getting close to, you know, to, to more and more people being able to watch uh, spectator golf events, which is really cool to see. But yeah, getting a chance to go around Harbor Town with Tim was a quite the thrill, especially when it was twenty seven days out from the, you know, and they're in their third tournament prep in, in in just twelve months. It was pretty cool, and that was really when you think about the designs and layouts that helped Pete Dye build his name and his brand. That's nineteen sixty nine. That's one of the first that really put. Pete Dye on the just not national golf scene but global golf scene with with the uh, prominence of Harbor Town and the the PGA Tour event that it hosts every year. And of course, Arnold Palmer wins the first tournament contested at at the revamped Harbor Town, which was originally a, a George Cobb golf course, which is great because in Bury Me in the Pot Bunker, which I highly recommend everybody read. I think it's the best book either written by about by a golf course architect or about golf course architecture, you know, Pete gives a lot of credit to George Cobb for the routing that he already had in place. And he also gives a lot of credit to his co-designer who was really doing his first high profile project. And you know who that co-designer was? I do not. A young Jack Nicholas. Uh, who? What? Never heard of him. So just such a, uh, it's one of those places I think everybody, has seen it on TV and would say, oh, I'd like to, to get there one day in one form or another. And uh, very, you start out and you just, you see the trees and the small greens on TV, but TV doesn't do it justice to how tight some of those playing corridors are, especially on the opening holes. And and you just, Jonathan Wright and his team have done a great job of um, pruning the trees and, you know, opening up some, uh, pathways for golfers to, to play shots and also more importantly probably for our listeners perspective opening up some uh, areas where sun can actually hit the turf I mean I, I can't imagine the challenges in maintaining that golf course because the trees are a big integral element of it strategically and that's part of what makes Harbortown really really cool but also it's got to be a, a nightmare for growing high quality tournament caliber turf and also uh, the place was absolutely bustling so here we are tw- you know, going around it 27 days before the week of a PGA Tour tournament, and there were tee times every 10 minutes. It was a mm. tee time factory when we were there, and it, it's just difficult to to believe that um, you can have that much golf. And it's really been like that since Sea Pines reopened Harbor Town to the public after the the Heritage last last June. It's really been solidly booked almost every day. They've been open for play, so uh, just a tremendous job. By that team, uh, you know, you see all the peat dye design elements. You see some trees and bunkers. You see the, the, the bulkheads and the railroad ties. You see par threes that are just all so different and over water. You see, you know, on the 13th hole, you have um, basically a uh, railroad tie bulkhead area and just uh, an island green, but it's a bunker around the green. And then you know, I don't really remember much from the first eight holes they were really solid holes but that stretch from nine to 18 is just so much fun to to go around and see and uh you just you couldn't wait to see what was around the the next turn and the next corner especially knowing that 17 and 18 were looming which are two of the great finishing holes in all the golf and one thing i didn't realize on the 18th hole you got the beautiful view of the sound and the lighthouse and 
Uh, there's actually a lot more room on the right for the average golfer to play the shot than it appears on TV. I just didn't realize how many condos were lining that fairway <laughs> because they're hidden by bleachers during the tournament. So, and you had people out on their porches watching golfers come in and just a lot of um, common area out there where you had Adirondack chairs or most Coca chairs, whatever you call them, depending where you're from and just mm -hmm. people hanging out. So it's really a day-to-day a -day hangout point and uh, the place just oozes history and it's um what 52 years old now opened in 1969 the pete die version yeah, of it so 52 years old and it's just a place that you feel like will never go out of style when you said a minute ago that they still had tea times every basically 10 minutes which is just incredible it seemed like that yeah when when do they start ramping down so i believe that they get an advance week with no play which is okay. which is huge if yeah. you talk to Anyone that's ever prepped for a televised golf tournament, they'll tell you that the the week before the tournament is actually more important than tournament week in a lot mm -hmm. of regards because that's when you really have to have to dial in the mowing lines and the bunker edges and and do some of the things that you can't get to in tournament week because of when basically from sun up to sun down you have play on the golf course and it's uh, play at the highest level and you have you know the, the ultimate magnifying glass and in, in TV so. They do get that advance week from what Jonathan Wright told me, which which is huge. And also, uh, you, you think about it, the place is going to be bustling again right after the tournament. Everybody wants to play a tournament course after it hosted a, a tournament on TV. But uh, they have very supportive ownership at Sea Pines. It's invested a lot of money into the property, and they do shut down all three courses uh, twice a year for airification, and okay. they do them all around the same time. I believe one's in in May and then the other ones in July or August from what Brooks and tell were telling me. So they, they kind of just rock them all out at, at once. So th they do give their golf courses a chance to breeze. Of course, you know, you're doing one in late May, early June, and then one in July slash August. So that's not exactly the, that peak time of year where you're, you're able to, you're getting the, a lot of your visitors. I want to say now though, there's really no good time to fit it in because no, they've had no. commerce going on for the last 12, 13 months now. Yeah. There hasn't, there hasn't I don't been a see good an end in sight. Last March, um, you mentioned probably ten or fifteen minutes ago by this point that if folks have not read "Bury Me in a Pot Bunker," the great, great Pete Dye book, that they should. You reread some of those chapters in advance of your trip. I will also recommend that they read, if they have not, the last few columns from Tim Morgan, your your host. Uh, going around Harbor and, his, Town. and his great wife Karen too who's a big friend of ours who's oh, a publicist yes. in the golf industry and she's she's as good as they come not only as a a, a publicist and publicist communications director uh marketing expert but just also as a human being Tim Tim and Karen are two of the nicest people you'll ever meet or spend time with and they love the game of golf Karen is also wonderful Karen though does not write a monthly column and so I can't recommend that listeners uh, read her column in golf course industry. She does have a part in editing that monthly column oh, for that sure. we see in golf course industry. For sure. We're not the first people to, to take a read at it. But Tim's columns, edited by Karen, have been uh, straight fire the last few months. His, his last effort, Turf Wars, about what happens when a job opens up, uh, the reaction from all the folks in the region. Fantastic column, and we discussed that on the most recent episode of Beyond the Page so, as well. How cool was this not only do you get to go to, around harbor town and you get to go around harbor town with tim morgan so tim in the early 1980s worked at tpc sawgrass right after it opened <laughs> so after the uh after our, our journey around the golf course uh in the inside the harbor town clubhouse they have a pete die room and we went in there and ha it, it was so cool uh and we watched some of the videos and it's cool because they have like they have a display with rocks in it that the educate the average golfer about how golf course drainage works. They have the die uh, golf course architect and construction tree. And, uh, you know, Tim and I were watching one of the videos. I believe it was like the 10 greatest uh, tournament moments on a, a Pete Dye golf course. And, you know, it gets done and you know how it is when you're in those museums and they play a video, there's silence after it. And Tim just goes over to me and he was getting a little emotional and he goes, Pete was simply the best guy. So, I was going to transition into Pete Dye's impact on the Low Country, on the South Carolina Low Country, but you beat me to the the punch there, talking about the Pete Dye room at Harbortown and what he meant to a lot of people. Uh, he 
designed what was it? Five courses, six courses, just in the Low Country, right? Harbor Town, uh, Heron, Heron Point. Yeah. So Harbor Town, Long Cove, Heron Point, Carlton River, and Hampton Hall. He has courses at too. So that yeah. that's five in that that golf market. And if you think about it, like we said, Hilton Head Island is called the Golf Island in its marketing materials. If Pete Dye doesn't come around with Jack Nicholas in 1969 and just absolutely knock it out of the park at Harbortown at the Sea Pines Resort, you wonder if that whole golf market would be what it is today. And then, of course, you know, 12 years later, they they knock it out at Long Cove Club, which, you know, built by people that love golf, and then they get to go back to Sea Pines and do Heron Point, and then, um, you know, courses at Carlton River and Hampton Hall, which are you know, private golf course communities. So, you know, the Hilton Head that market that everybody wants to move to right now and everybody wants to play golf at it may not be the market it is today had pete Dye not come around in the late 1960s absolutely yeah and you could say about some other markets too sure well and also coastal golf you think about it i i I land in charleston and you know what's going on near charleston this year you wouldn't know it in the airport i don't know you wouldn't know it walking around town because i didn't see any signage for it but there's a major championship going on near Charleston in two months. The PGA Championship is coming to oh the ocean gosh, course completely. at Kiwa Island Resort, Whiffed, yeah. which is another uh, highly regarded Pete Dye design there in the low country of mm-hmm. South Carolina. So not only did Pete Dye make a gigantic mark on Hilton Head Island golf, his mark on low country South Carolina golf is incredible because Kiwa Island Resort, of course, hosted the War at the Shore, the 1991 Ryder Cup, which that golf course was a big part of a huge golf story and then hosted the PGA championship. Uh, I think it was 2011, 2012 when Rory McIlroy ran with it away with it. So uh, yeah, he, he, what he has done for South Carolina golf is just simply incredible. Yeah. And tough to believe that it's only been what, 13, 14 months since he passed away. Obviously time has been completely different uh, over the last year and change, and it feels like about five or ten years ago, but Pete Dye passed away last year, which does not seem possible. Yeah, anybody who spent even 30 seconds with him will remember those encounters for the, the rest of his life. And you think about not only his impact on the game of golf, but you think about his impact on communities in some of these growth areas or places that people want to move to would so many people want to move to places like Palm Springs, California or Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, or, you know, or go visit Culler, Wisconsin if Pete Dye had not come around. So really he is, uh, if you, if you think about the values of homes around golf courses he designed and the tourism revenue that he's brought to places, I mean, I don't even know what his economic impact would be. I mean, it's got to be in, in the billions, if not the hundreds of billions. Easily. One of the towering figures across the board of golf in the last 50 or so years. You made one more stop. It was not on a course. You spent an afternoon on campus with our friends at the Ori Georgetown Technical College, and I am already looking forward to seeing them this November at the Carolinas GCSA conference and show. Missed them terribly last year after meeting them the year before. Uh, what a what a treat to to spend time with the with with the Ori Georgetown team. Yeah, Charles Granger and Ashley Wilkinson, uh, they run the the golf and sports turf management program at Ori Georgetown Technical College, which is in Conway, South Carolina, which is right outside Myrtle Beach, which is where this journey uh, ended for me. I had an opportunity to go and speak to their uh, second year student class. And, you know, for me, it was sort of shocking to be on a school campus again, because I don't have a a child. I obviously don't teach in a school. So it was interesting going on the campus. Everybody was masked up. I gave a presentation to the second year students, just had so much fun doing it. And Charles and Ashley, you know, we've spoken with them numerous times throughout the course of the last 12 months, and they've been committed to uh, finding whatever avenues possible to educate their students in person. Because if you think about it, it's called a technical college, right? Mm-hmm. Most of the people who go to technical colleges enjoy working with their hands, and that's how they, they, they learn best. They don't learn best over the computer. They want to do a hands-on you know, type of job. And 
Ashley and Charles and a lot of the other faculty at the school have worked just so hard to, to get students on campus safely throughout the past year. And they found a way to make hybrid learning work. And it was great to speak with them in person. And another thing that they've been able to do in the last year, and we had an article written by Ashley Wilkinson about this in our December turf heads takeover issue is that they last summer opened their turf care demonstration center. That's right. Which is just awesome. It's it's about an acre site on the corner corner of campus. Uh, they have every it's like a par three hole, but then they have all these different varieties of grasses there. They have Bermuda grasses that they get to work with, Paspalum, Zoysia grass, bent grass, centipede grass, Saint Augustine grass. They have a they have a bunker. They have an irrigation system, and it was a huge industry effort to get this thing built. They received help from a lot of the industry companies in the Carolinas, whether it was getting equipment or getting uh, turf varieties to, to seed and, and grow in, or they got help from golf course architect, Craig Schreiner, uh, shaping the hole and just so cool to see it. And I, I spent, you know, Ashley had to go back to class, but I spent an hour out there with Charles Granger, who was, you know, anyone that's met him knows that mm -hmm. he can spin a story and he's as passionate as they come and just it was so cool to be out there and see what they they built and where the students get to do the you know really hands-on learning and it was as we were doing it that you know right next to it there were a bunch of um power poles and you saw the the uh the students training to become electrical linesmen out there doing their their oh, cool. class work and these school these technical schools are gonna they're already super important but they're gonna become more and more important because you know, like we mentioned earlier in this podcast, there, there there are some industries or some sectors of work where there isn't the amount of labor available or qualified or trained labor to satisfy uh, the demands for services. So I really feel like a, a school like Ori Georgetown Technical College has a tremendous future and they have people coming out of school and some of those industries making you know, 70, 80, 90,000 right away because just the demand for those and they get great support from their uh, college president, and they also get great support from the state of South Carolina. There are 14 technical colleges in the state of South Carolina. So sure. think of all these people that want to move down there. They want homes. They want water. They, they want electric to their home. They want water to their home. They want they want people to be able to cook them food in restaurants. They want people to be able to maintain their, their golf courses at a high level. And this is really, it was just such a, and I'd been on their campus before during the Carolina show for presentations. And it was just so it was invigorating being there, and I, I was really just inspired to see the students in class learning that way. And I was even more inspired when I, when I went outside and saw uh, the turf care demonstrations center that uh, Ashley and Charles worked so hard with with college leaders and others in the industry to, to get built. And it's just something to, to, for them to be so proud of. And it's going to create opportunities for st students to go out there and better their lives. And Ashley and Charles were the guests on the most recent episode of Pulling Weeds, the great podcast hosted by uh, Alan Knight and Tim Krieger, uh, tied with the, the Carolinas GCSA. Great program. I'm sure a lot of people who listen to this listen to that. But if you haven't caught that episode already, Guy, remind folks what the mascot is for Ori Georgetown. They are the Fighting Mole Crickets. Fighting Mole Crickets. And, and the Sunday before the Carolina show every year I play golf with Ashley and sometimes Charles is available. Charles has a daughter who's a high level soccer player. So he, he's, you know, jetting her or driving her off to tournaments every weekend. And sometimes Charles uh, has time to join us. But after our Sunday golf day, two years ago, they handed me a fighting mole cricket shirt. So I wore that to the presentation instead of the golf course industry gear, because I, I needed to get respect from these students right away. So I figured that that would at least wake them up. <laughs> and because they are the fighting Mole crickets. Here is this this insect wearing boxing gloves, and I don't remember if it was Tim or if it was Alan on pulling weeds. I think it was Tim who asked if uh, Ori, Ori Georgetown graduates received boxing gloves so they could pose like the the fighting mole cricket in the logo. And unfortunately, boxing gloves are not in the budget for Ori Georgetown graduates yet maybe some some alums who go on to do big things can set aside some money in the endowment for for boxing gloves for grads well i know we're running super long here we have a lot to talk about but a lot of people know charles and ashley because for years they've been taking groups of students to pga tour events to, to, to volunteer 
And that, like a lot of other things, slowed down over the past year. But they've just done back-to-back events. Ashley took a team down to, to Bay Hill to volunteer the Arnold Palmer Invitational. And Charles took a group down to the Players' Championship at TPC Sawgrass. So that's another cool thing when you talk about hands-on education and the technical college experience. Those, those two professors spend you know, chunks of time away from their families volunteering at these PGA Tour tournaments so their students can get the opportunity. And if you've ever volunteered a PGA Tour tournament and Charles is around, just go hang out with them at the meals in between the (laughs) uh, volunteer sessions. You will hear so many stories about so many different things in the industry. He's got to be one of the top five uh, story spinners in the industry. And it's probably somebody that we've had. You've had Ashley on the Beyond the Page podcast, but we just maybe need to do a one-off podcast with Charles Granger one day. We'll have Charles on. Charles, if you're listening, just give us a call and, and you have a standing invitation. He's a busy guy because he, he he's like uh, he oversees more than the golf and sports turf management program. He oversees uh, a whole entire department there. So he's really working his way into the upper levels of the administration, which is good for their golf and sports turf program because they'll have a huge advocate in Charles and higher administration at the college. Yeah. Well, Guy, thanks so much for sharing some thoughts. I think you had 14 pages of notes on your week in South Carolina. And thanks to all of you for listening to all the podcasts on the Superintendent Radio Network, new episodes of Beyond the Page and Greens with Envy and Off the Course. And, of course, Tartan Talks right here every Tuesday. A couple quick promotions. Our March issue is online. We mentioned Tim Morgan's column about turf wars that's in there. Guy's story about Oak Hill is in there. I have a cover story about a wonderful nine-hole course up in Windsor, Vermont called John P. Larkin Country Club. So, so much more in that issue. Check it out at www.golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine. You can read more industry news and notes in our Fast and Firm newsletter that's delivered every Tuesday to your inbox. If you don't already receive it, you can sign up online at golfcourseindustry.com, either under the subscribe tab or after a recent homepage redesign. I think there's a, a little box that you can just plug your email in right on the homepage. And, of course, the 10th annual Tweet Up, tag it online, hashtag GCI Tweet Up 21. We're rolling out special guests every day on Twitter, in addition to Super Social Media Award winner videos, the first again with recently retired turf legend Matt Schaefer, who is our social media rookie of the year. The tweet up for the record, 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday, March 31st on Zoom. You'll need to register. It is free to attend. Golf Course Industry is produced by him, Guy Cipriano, and me, Matt Lowell. Our columnists are the best in the business, Terry Buchan, Henry DeLosier, Bradley S. Klein, Tim Morgan, and Matthew Wharton. We have some just fantastic regular contributors too. Tyler Bloom, Trent Bouts, Lee Carr, who has a whole package of stories coming up in the April issue that everybody is going to love. Ron Furlong, Judd Spicer, John Torsiello, Anthony Williams, and Rick Wolfel. Our publisher is Dave Zai. Our sales gurus are Russ Warner and Andrew Hatfield. Jim Blaney designs the magazine. He does a fantastic job. Kate McCoy makes sure everything goes where it should. Avril Braden and Christina Warner make sure you all receive the magazine. Kelly Antle makes sure we all get paid. Michaela Dodrell handles advertising and production. Irene Sweeney does so, so, so much we can't even keep it straight. Anna Kolar, Cody Minnick, Tom Bauman, Patrick Briand, and Aaron Schreider make up our IT team. Nick Adams, AG, Alexander Garrett, Clark Quick, Jay Voiden, and Kevin Caslow are our online and video experts. Stephen Webb handles our classifieds. Our president is Chris Foster. I don't actually know what he's up to. I haven't seen him in a while, although I know he's coming in every day. Above all else, we couldn't do what we do without you. Thanks so much for listening. Myrtle Beach days. We'll have some fun in the waves. I don't care what the West Coast says, because I love those Myrtle Beach, love those Myrtle Beach days.
Matt, you forgot to ask me about Myrtle Beach. What about Myrtle Beach? What happens in Myrtle Beach stays in Myrtle Beach, unless you're there for the Carolina show. (laughs) I'm going to edit that to the very end.